Thank you, Sylvia. Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We have finally reached the text that has long puzzled many a theologian and churchgoer. The text on which I've had my eye ever since we started 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that I've read and I've studied more for this sermon than in any previous one I have yet to give. In fact, the first four commentaries I picked up all said something to the effect that this is the most puzzling passage in the New Testament. And I say all that to explain why this sermon might feel a little bit different, a little bit different than normal. This text feels very foreign to us, and so to try and make it applicable, make it relevant to us, I will be making a lot of logical arguments. I'll be doing a lot of exegetical spade work. And so I exhort you to hang with me. For those that persevere in the study of this passage, you will be rewarded with a keener insight on some fundamental principles concerning man and woman, how they relate, and how they ought to act towards one another. And so this text, though it feels foreign, actually rewards diligent labor. And it rewards with very practical and important instruction. But before we get to those rewards, let's, let's put in our study. Uh, starting in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, I'll begin reading in verse 2. Hear the word of our Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from, from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have the symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we ask for wisdom and insight and clarity we ask that your very spirit that inspired these words would also help us to read them rightly. We ask for the eyes of faith that we might rightly behold you. Ears that we might be coming expectantly to your word. Hearts ready to submit to it. And feet and hands ready to go and do that which your word bids of us. We ask this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Last week, we spent our time examining the first two verses of this section, specifically endeavoring to understand rightly verse 3. And that's because verse 3 is really the bedrock theological foundation that undergirds all of the instruction that follows. Verse 3 deals with the authority structures that God has built into creation from the very beginning. God is the head of Christ, Christ the head of man, man the head of woman. These are fundamental principles. These are channels of authority that have been hardwired into the very fabric of nature since God first spoke things into existence. And if we don't understand that, then all of the discussion downstream of that will run amok. It doesn't matter how you interpret the head coverings or the discussion of hair if you buck at the very idea of creation's pattern of submission and authority. The emblems of authority and submission are meaningless without a heart and a mind aligned with these God-ordained channels. And so having tried to sketch out these good and godly structures, we're now in a position this week to try and understand what Paul is doing in the rest of the section. If you'll remember, Paul has been addressing a series of questions that the Corinthian believers had asked of him. Earlier questions about sexuality and marriage, questions about meat sacrificed to idols, and now about head coverings. And I'll try to explain what's going on in this passage, and I want to do that by trying to answer three questions. Three questions that I hope will help us make sense of what Paul is doing here. And the first is, what is the covering? And then we'll, dis- we'll ask, why is Paul concerned about these coverings? And then thirdly, how does this apply to us today? Now before I get to that first question, let me go ahead and say a brief word about one of the most enigmatic statements in the whole Bible, and that is verse 10, about the angels. Paul says, this is why a woman ought to have the symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. And this phrase, because of the angelos, is intriguing to anyone who spent time studying this passage. Scholars disagree exactly what, Paul, what point Paul is making in the mentioning of angels. Some say that the word angels doesn't actually refer to heavenly spiritual beings, but rather to messengers, people, Christians even, who were sent from place to place, from church to church. That is... The women in the congregation in Corinth ought to have the symbol of authority on their heads because of these visiting travelers who might join the worship service and be scandalized by women not wearing the sign of authority. Others think that Paul is actually referring to angels, as in the heavenly spiritual beings, and some of those interpretations can get quite fanciful, quite speculative. For example, some have argued that Women ought to have the sign of authority on their heads, lest the male angels lust after the women, like the sons of God did in Genesis 6. That's a bit far-fetched for me. Others, like Tom Schreiner, mention that the angels are a reference to the good angels who even now assist in worship and desire to see God's good creation orders maintained. And they would likewise be offended by any visible usurpation of God's intended order, as demonstrated by a lack of head coverings on the women in worship. The angels were present at the time of creation, passages like Job 38.7 teach us, and even today they celebrate the goodness of God's created order. And so this interpretation is even made more appealing by verses like 1 Timothy 5.21, which speaks of us being in the presence of God and the elect angels. 
Another possible interpretation is an expansion of the previous one about the good angels, and it takes into account also the fallen angels. And I do think that the good angels look into our worship even now and desire to see God's good authority structures honored. But I also think the biblical account of the fallen angels is a parable of what happens when God's authority structures are rejected. So, for example, Jude verse 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so the wicked angels left their proper place. They rejected their position of submission to God and His authority and have been imprisoned until the final judgment. And so with all of that, I think that the reference to angels in 1 Corinthians 11 is likely referring to the godly station of good angels and their desire to see God's creation patterns maintained, but also perhaps a reference and a warning tied to the punishment given to wicked angels because of their rejection of God's hierarchy of submission and authority. Now, you might disagree with me on that finer point of this passage and its interpretation, and that's okay. This is a hard text, but I do think that the main point of the passage is clear, regardless of where one lands on interpreting the angelic reference. Now, with that, let's move on to our first major question. What was the head covering? What was the head covering to which Paul keeps referencing? Verse 4 says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So what then is the covering? Two main views have been proposed as to the exact nature of the covering. And the first is that this covering is actually a person's hair. It's not some fabric veil or shawl or, or hat. Thus, this position teaches that Paul is concerned in this passage with the Corinthian women in the congregation letting their hair hang down loose, hang down their backs. We might say it this way, that some of the Corinthian women were so styling their hair in a way that disregarded the goodness of God's created order. And so they were communicating in a nonverbal way a rejection of submission to their head, to their husband, and ultimately a rejection of God's authority. Under this view, Paul is wanting the women to use their hair as a natural covering and to style their hair on their heads in a way as to demonstrate their submission to their earthly head and their heavenly head. And some of us have been among congregations where the women might wear their hair on, on buns on top of their head. Many women, in fact, have worn their hair in, the, in, in this way in the history of the church. Some of you are old enough to remember when all the women wore Sunday hats to church. And if those hats were ever taken off, their hair would be up in a bun on their head. This tradition usually goes back to this text. And that's the first view, which one preacher comically called the bun view, because the hair was to be a bun on the top of the head. Now, in favor of this bun view, we might cite the following arguments. Paul, number one, Paul nowhere mentions the word veil except in verse 15. Even though some people interpret the word for covering or veil throughout this passage, in actuality, the only time Paul uses the word for veil, parabaleu, is in verse 15, for her hair is given to her as a covering, as a veil. 
So argument number one in favor of the bun view as opposed to some other sort of fabric covering is that Paul doesn't actually mention fabric head coverings or veils. And when he does, when he does use that word in verse 15, it's clear he's talking about a woman's hair, not a hat. Number two, in favor of the bun view. Veiling was not required in Old Testament Israel, and it is doubtful that it was practiced in the time of Jesus except by some rich or cosmopolitan women of the day. I won't bore you with the historical background of all of that. You're interested, you can read the footnotes of this sermon, which I'll publish online tomorrow. The points for us to note so far are in favor of the bun view, is that neither the word veil is used throughout the passage, nor was it common practice of the day. Thirdly, in Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture, long or disheveled hair, or hair that had been cut closely, shorn short, was a sign that the wearer had been cut off from their community. Fourth, the word for covering throughout this passage is related to another word that's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, specifically Numbers chapter 5, which says this, verse 16, And the priest shall bring the woman near and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance. And so the word there for unbinding of her hair, letting her hair hang down loose, is tied is the same Greek word tied that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11. And so that's the fourth reason. Those are the four primary reasons that commentators argue in favor of the covering in chapter 11 being merely a woman's hair and not of actual fabric covering. On the other hand, other commentators think that Paul is actually talking about a covering apart from the woman's hair. And the simplest argument to me in favor of interpreting Paul as referencing a fabric head covering is not to actually look at the women, but look at what Paul says about the men. Paul says that it is shameful for a man to pray with his head covered. And if that is the case, then it seems to me that a plain reading of the text is that all the men should be bald. If, if the head covering is hair, and that hair is shameful on a man, all the men should be shorn. If a covering is naturally shameful for a man, then they ought to remove any bit of shameful head covering, have no hair on their heads, and there be, thereby be without shame. So, Pastor Jim, you're in luck. Sean, you're, Sean's well on his way, too. In all seriousness, that view just doesn't make sense to me. So in favor of the head covering view or the veil view, we can make several arguments. And it's worth noting, this, is, this isn't a full face veil like Muslim women will wear today. It was more like a head shawl or a piece of fabric over the head. But the first argument in favor of the veil view is the comparative usage of the word to cover, like to cover one's head. The verb translated as covering in this passage, three times in verse 6, it's in verse 7 and one other place. That verb most commonly refers to an actual covering of some kind. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, the cherubim covered their faces with their hands, with their wings. The same kind of verb. 
And it refers to an actual covering, not merely letting one's hair hang down. Likewise, Esther chapter 6, verse 12, we read that Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. That's the same language from 1 Corinthians 11. And it was not a reference to Haman changing his hairstyle, but rather covering his head in shame with some sort of fabric covering. Maybe a scarf, we might say. Further, we can look at the usage of the covering language outside of Scripture to see that the word covering as it relates to the head is used in reference to an actual covering and not a hairstyle. Plutarch speaks that way of a head being covered with part of a toga. Philo, a Jewish philosopher, uses the same term to speak of the priest removing a handkerchief off someone's head. And so what all that means is that the words Paul is using to describe here, describe the covering itself and the state of being covered or uncovered, all of those terms are used in a manner that indicates the presence of an actual covering. The verbs are used in a transitive way to speak in grammarian terms, which means that it points out that the covering is actually something rather than merely hair. And so that leads me to conclude that the covering to which Paul is speaking is an actual covering, something like a shawl or a scarf that's used to cover the head. Now that's, that's where I land on this issue, but wherever we land, the major, the major point is clear. Women are to dress in a certain way, and Paul is impressing upon them that this way ought to look clearly different than the men. That much is clear. As to the exact nature of the covering, what it was supposed to be like, that we can argue all night. Paul is speaking of some sort of apparel, some sort of adornment, and teaching us that that adornment was expressive of either submission to God's design and order, or rejection of God's design and order, and thus a rejection of our heavenly head. How we dress matters. And Paul makes that clear, that men and women ought to dress differently. Second question, why is Paul so concerned with these head coverings? Why is Paul concerned? Why is he making these claims? And why are women to dress in a way different than men? Well, verse 3 spells out man's headship and woman's submission to him, yet it never undermines the woman's equality with him. Equality and headship can go together. Head coverings are not to be worn by men. Ironically enough, they do that today. The little yarmulke started around the 400s. But men are not to wear them. Women are to wear them, Paul is saying, and this indicates their submission to God's plan and her vital role in that plan. And consequently, for a man to wear a covering or for a woman to leave the covering off is to express either rejection of or confusion about the roles that God has ordained for man and woman. A woman covered is expressing her submission to the role to which God has designed her as a helpmate for man. And a man uncovered is expressing his submission to God's role and to the leadership that that man is to express under God's authority. So important is this to Paul that he equates the rejection of these principles with the embrace of either prostitution 
or radical feminism. That's what verse 5 and following says. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And so Paul's saying if a woman refuses to wear the covering, she might as well shave her head, which in that culture expressed harlotry or a radical rejection of femininity. And I point out his rhetorical overstatement here to indicate the importance that Paul is giving to this point. Now further, Paul states that there is dishonor associated with getting this wrong. Rejecting the pattern brings dishonor on her head. Does that mean her own cranium? Or does it mean her head, specifically her husband? Well, I think both in the way that Proverbs speaks of rebellious children bringing shame upon themselves and their parents, their authority. When we rebel against any godly authority, it brings shame upon us and it dishonors the authorities placed over us and ultimately it dishonors God, our heavenly head. This is no small issue for Paul, which is why this passage can be relevant to us today even though we're so removed geographically and historically from Corinth. We don't want to dishonor our head, neither men nor women, by behaving in a way that rebels against God's plan and His pattern for authority and submission. Now another observation before we move on to the third major question, and that is this. Notice the context of this discussion. The context of this discussion is praying and prophesying. Men praying and prophesying with covered heads and women praying and prophesying with heads uncovered. But how do we reconcile that with 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 through 35, where Paul says that women should be silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Is there anything that they desire, if there's anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So Paul addresses women who are praying and prophesying in chapter 11, but then in chapter 14, he says they shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. So which is it, Paul? Can they pray or prophesy or not? Well, some people just abandon ship and they say, well, Paul was just contradicting himself. Well, that's not helpful or satisfying, nor does it honor the Holy Spirit that gave Paul his words. Paul's not going to contradict himself in the space of just a few chapters. Others say that Paul is speaking and addressing in chapters 11 and 14 two different kinds of speaking. But that's unconvincing textually, especially since the same words are used in the same way in those places. Others reconcile the two passages by saying that they're speaking to two different contexts. So, for example, John MacArthur and others might say that chapter 11 refers to a woman when she's out in public, when she's shopping, when she's in the market, anywhere other than church. But chapter 14 addresses the woman within the context of the church, within the worship service. Two different contexts. I suppose that's possible, but I don't see any compelling reason within the text to make those distinctions. Another reason, which is more compelling to me, is that Paul is simply taking the problems once, one at a time. So in chapter 11, he's addressing the fundamental issues of authority and headship, and he's not going to muddy the waters by addressing any Corinthian practical inconsistencies that have been flowing downstream of that. That is, he's got to get the main problem fixed first in chapter 11 by addressing how God designed creation to operate, 
And only then can he address the problems of disorderly worship services in chapter 14. And we'll address the particulars of that passage in due time. But for tonight, let's focus on the main points of this passage. That God has made man and woman and made them both in his image. Total equality of being. And yet, diversity in role. Ontological equality, functional difference. And that fact is to be expressed and honored by the way that we dress and behave. Now, before we leave this question, it's worth noting verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. This passage reminds me of 1 Peter 3, where Peter mentions how men and women are both joint heirs in Christ Jesus, after having just spent six verses explaining man's authority over his wife. Similarly, I think Paul is aware of how some of his argumentation in this passage could be twisted by wicked men into arguing for a subordinate status for women, as if women are made for the pleasure of men or for the service of men. And Paul is cutting that off. There is, in godly leadership, no room for chauvinistic, macho, browbeating, male-dominating character. And that best not be in the house of God either. All of these things are from God, Paul says. Both men and women are united together as equals in the salvation of God. But that union in no way separates the distinction, the diversity of roles given by God from the beginning. In fact, verses 11 and 12 highlight the mutual dependence that we all have upon one another in our proper roles. Man needs woman and woman needs man. Neither exists without the other. We are mutually dependent and all of these things come from God. Mutuality and dependence in harmony with leadership and submission. That's how God designed the home and the church to operate. Woman can't build a home with another woman. Man cannot build a home with another man. I don't need to go into the details there, but they don't fit. There is a complementarity to how God has made things to operate. And when that complementarity, when that fittedness is rejected, you'll see not merely that the parts don't quite fit right, but the whole ethos of the institution is torpedoed. Verses 11 and 12 keep us from going off the rails in one direction, just like verses 3 through 10 keep us from going off the rails in another direction. Equality of being, complementarity of roles. God's plan is clear to see, and any failure to recognize it will bring pain and dysfunction upon those too stubborn to see it. Now let's move on to the third and final question. How does this apply to us today? How in the world does any of this apply to Montgomery in 2022? Well, Paul says in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Consider yourselves. Think it through. And what does verse 14 say? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. Does not nature itself teach? That's an interesting question. Is Paul saying here that a man wearing long hair 
is clearly perceived from natural revelation as a universal moral wrong. That is, is Paul saying that for a man to have long hair, and conversely for a woman to have short hair, is a universally applicable, timeless moral standard and thus moral law for every person who has ever lived. That's what some teach. That's what some imply that Paul is saying here. That for a man to have long hair is always wrong, and by extension for a woman to have short hair is always wrong. I I couldn't bring myself to agree with that statement, classifying this as moral law. And I couldn't do that for several reasons, not the least of which is that God commanded men in the Old Testament under the Nazarite vow to not cut their hair. Think of Samson. And how could a good God command something that was inherently dishonoring for that man to grow his hair long? How could he do something, command a haircut that was necessarily shameful? I couldn't reconcile that. And so this to me was the the kind of nub, the the thing that I needed to unlock if I was going to figure out how this passage went together and applied to us. I couldn't reconcile at first Paul's thought regarding nature and custom. Does not nature itself teach? And so I was really helped by reading some articles by a theologian named Stephen Wedgworth. And I'll summarize some of his arguments to hopefully help us apply this in a useful way, in a helpful, God-honoring way. Significantly for this discussion, we should note that Paul's arguments include a valuing of tradition, verse 2, and a valuing of custom, verse 16. These references imply within the logic of Paul that there exists a category of ethical behaviors which aren't moral law, think like Ten Commandments, never changing, thou shalt not kill, but nor is it positive law like baptism or the Lord's Supper tied to a particular covenant. And so outside of those moral and positive laws, Paul seems to have a category we might call custom or tradition. And these customs can be proper or improper, fitting or unfitting. That is, customs can align with and accentuate nature, or they can conflict with nature, thereby proving themselves to be unfitting. And so when Paul says, does not nature itself teach you, Paul believes that we should present ourselves in public in a manner consistent with what we are called to be as defined by God. We should look like what we are. In social settings, our public presentation should be governed and restrained by humility, by submission to appropriate authorities, and by moderation. A custom is a public and repeated practice, and it's meant to enforce certain moral principles and social principles. It's not a law, but rather a repeated action meant to teach and persuade through example. Customs vary according to time and place, and they take their meaning from broader public interpretation. And so by way of example... There is no moral law in Scripture requiring me to open the door and allow a woman to go into the building first. And yet, that custom is fitting, given the fact that man ought to be the servant. He ought to be willing to lay down his life for her. 
and given the fact that woman is the glory of man. The custom for me opening a door for somebody else is morally neutral in and of itself, but it is consistent with nature and the way that God has designed creation to operate. We have many other customs today that aren't absolute moral law, but which can contribute and accentuate the way that God designed things to be. Thinking of things like wedding rings. Is it a sin to not wear a wedding ring? Well, of course not. Or a woman taking her husband's last name. Neither of those things are universal moral law, but the rejection of such a custom in our current environment might reveal a deeper issue with submission to God's design. Now, Paul himself calls the use of head coverings in verse 16 a custom or a practice. And Martin Luther, John Calvin, many others commended women in their congregations for covering their heads in the public assemblies, but also noted that this was a matter of custom. Many other commentators agree. The head coverings in Corinth served as customs that honored and expressed the authority structures in creation. And they did so while also allowing for decorum to be maintained within the context of the church. And I think that that principle helps us as we try to apply the principles of this passage to us today. And so let me close with three brief principles of application. First, and these are coming from largely from Wedgworth, this passage teaches us the importance of decorum in Christian assemblies. This passage teaches us about the importance of decorum in Christian assemblies. We should make sure that our dress and our behavior is consistent with what we believe about human sexuality as well as modesty and respect for others. And that means we need discernment. Many Christians need to learn to resist the culture's fashions and trends that might be coming in. We may sometimes wish to dress for more comfort, but we also must always dress with the conscience of our neighbor in mind. Our public presentation should promote a godly respect for authority. Second, this passage shows us the deep reality of human sexuality and its implications for public interactions. The deep reality of human sexuality and its implications for public interaction. Our behavior ought to reflect who we are as God has created us. This isn't a matter of biblical prescriptions or proscriptions, but rather actions that flow from our nature and that glorify our callings as male or female. This isn't a purely individual decision. Instead, we ought to respect the abiding customs in the place in which we live. We should be skeptical of and indeed reject a revolutionary impulse that is a knee-jerk reaction. We should embrace our creational, our natural sexuality and live by it in a way that is consistent and appropriate. Third, I don't believe that churches today have to resurrect the custom of head coverings. Were the customs still dominant and pervasive in our culture? It might be pious to respect and retain it, but a lost custom is somewhat different. When a custom is lost, the public meaning of that custom changes. And enforcing a lost custom again, anew, 
can send a different and sometimes mistaken meaning. So, for example, a hundred years ago, men wore dark suits to most public events, including recreation, from a desire not to stand out. That was the custom of the day. But were you to do that today, go to Jordan-Hare Stadium in a dark suit on a a Saturday afternoon, it would have the opposite effect. Right? Wearing hats is similar. In earlier areas, wearing a hat, eras, wearing a hat would signify ordinary politeness. Now, however, it carries a somewhat different public meaning. And so, in sum, I think this passage teaches us that godly customs and practice can be retained. And it teaches us to investigate our customs to see what message they are sending. Intelligible customs that signify male headship or the glory of godly femininity should be respected and promoted. But not all of them must be maintained once they've been lost. Now, I've said a lot tonight, and I probably have lost some of you. Others of you may disagree entirely with how I put this passage together, and others of you might flat out hate every word of this passage don't care what God says. For each of us, whether it be men who have failed to be who God has called us to be, or women who have failed to be who God has called you to be, we have all fallen short of the standard. We have failed to lead, failed to honor, and in doing so, have brought dishonor upon our head, who is Jesus Christ. But praise be to God that he has worked to bring about forgiveness. We we that trust in Jesus are forgiven of our rebellion. We have been given the Holy Spirit that we might grow in what it means to be godly men and women in the strength of Christ. And if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, then tonight is a wonderful opportunity. God has provided a way, and all you must do is trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You may do that this night and be saved from the wrath to come and have Christ as your head. We will close tonight with a picture of God's plan of redemption, which is that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who willingly submitted to die, that a bride might be saved from certain death. And for the believers among us trusting in Christ, devoted to the Bible and to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayer, we invite you to join us at the Lord's table. If you're out of fellowship with Christ or His church, then let the plates pass, lest you drink judgment upon yourself. I will pray, and then our table servants will come. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ and for this symbol, this emblem, this picture on the table before us of His blood that was shed, His body that was broken, that we might be saved. Take these elements, Lord, and set them apart. Use them in a mighty and holy way for the building up of your church. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.